Stanford University. Uh, on the Iraqi opposition, and uh, I was asked to say a few words about, uh, honestly, I can't remember what it was. There was an American gentleman who, um, and the audience was mostly Iraqi. Most people in the audience were Iraqis. Um, and you must remember 1997 was a time when um, the idea that floated around was that uh, the Shi'is of Iraq can be a double-edged sword for America because uh, they're, after all, Shi'is, like the evil Iranians, therefore as they're as evil as the Iranians, and one shouldn't support them. So speaker after speaker uh, tried to, uh, you know, uh, introduce a measure of nuance into this um, uh, vision and there was, was one American gentleman who kept telling these Iraqis that they were in fact Arabs. Wink, wink. We know what that means. Um, and, uh, you know, the Iraqis nodded. Yes, they're indeed Arabs. Um, and then I went up there and uh, uh, said, yes, but I mean, that's true. Iraqis are Arabs. Iranians are not. But look at the architecture of uh, Karbala and Najaf. It's much more like Mashhad and Rome than like Cairo and um, Casablanca. Uh, look at what Iraqis eat. It's much more like what Iranians eat, and so on and so forth. Ideas that I will develop in the paper you'll hear in a minute. When the seminar ended, all these Iraqis came up to me, nodded, smiled, and thanked me in Persian. So... Um, it uh, became clear to me that uh, these um, uh, notions of a um, pure Arab and a pure Persian uh, really had to be somewhat um, taken apart. And this was the, uh, the beginning of my reflection on this issue, uh, of which I'm going to give you a, a short version uh, today. The geographic proximity between uh, Iraq and Iran and uh, their frequent association in discussions of the politics of the eastern half of the Middle East um, has led many to confuse them. I mean, the, they even share three out of four letters. Um, and only somebody who knows the Arabic alphabet knows that uh, this is a complete coincidence. Uh, however, uh, the uh, semantic fields of the words Iraq and Iran do indeed overlap a little bit, because in Iran there used to be a huge area called Iraq Ajam, uh, Persian uh, Iraq, and that geographical term actually survives to this day in Persianized form uh, in the city of Iraq. Uh, moreover, the inhabitants of Gilan, uh, in the northern parts of the country, call the, in, call the area south of the mountains, hmm, the Iranian plateau, south of the Alborz mountains, actually Iraq. Hmm. So, uh, even in terms of toponyms, uh, there is a, a considerable overlap uh, between the two. In an effort to correct the Western uh, public's presumed inability to differentiate sufficiently between Iran and Iraq, it is often asserted, uh, with great importance, that uh, Iraq and Iran could not be more different, that the abyss between them being due to the fact that Iraqis are Arabs while Iranians are Persians. And the eight-year war between Iran and Iraq between 1980 and 1988 and the previous tensions between Republican Iraq and Pahlavi Iran seem to be proof that no matter who governs in both countries, relations between the two are bound to be hostile. 
long periods of friendly relations, most importantly between 1937 and 1958 when the two countries were actually allies, being conveniently forgotten. Most analyses of the Iran-Iraq war begin by noting that the conflict was but a new manifestation of an ancient enmity between Arabs and Persians, uncritically echoing Saddam Hussein's war propaganda. The French journalist Paul Balta even went so far as to suggest that this 5,000-year-old war had a racial character as it opposed, quote, Arabs and Persians, that is to say, Semites and Aryans, unquote, which is, I think, somewhat bewildering, coming from a man of the left. The journalist Thomas Friedman asserted that, quote, Hundreds of years of Mesopotamian history teach us that Arabs and Persians do not play well together, and that there exists a natural antipathy and competition between Iraqi Arabs and Iranian Persians, and that Iran and Iraq did not fight a war for eight years by mistake, or just because Saddam was in power. And the implication being that they did the right thing. Also strange. While uh, a majority of Iraqis would wholeheartedly agree that they are an Arab nation, and while a majority of Iranians conceive of their country as Persian, my contention in this paper is that this distinction must not be essentialized. The fact that three-quarters of Iraqis are Arabs and that Persian culture defines Iranianness, even for those people who are not native speakers, does not in and of itself mean that the two peoples are essentially different or genetically programmed not to get along. To demonstrate this contention, I will first show that to a certain degree the Arabness of Iraq and the Iranianness or the Persianness of Iran are ideological constructs as both states have multi-ethnic populations, including groups that are present on both sides of the border. More importantly, in both countries, a majority of the population adheres to Twelver Shiism, which creates another bond between them. Having thus relativized the primordialist approach to the relationship between the two countries, I will go further and show that the two societies' culture contains many common elements. After that, I will address the issue of Iraqi and Iranian nationalism and show that the othering of neighbors is in fact a relatively recent phenomenon and does not have ancient roots. Um, my first point, therefore, is uh, to take apart this notion that Iraq is essentially Arab and Iran is essentially Persian by showing uh, that um, there are many communities that tie the countries together, in fact, act like straps that keep the two societies bound together. Now, the fact that ethnic and political boundaries do not coincide is, of course, not remarkable at all. Uh, they rarely do, uh, even in Europe, the cradle of the idea that they should coincide. All, of, all over the world, we find ethnic communities that straddle international borders. What is unique about Iraq and Iran is that the communities have been linked so closely that individuals have passed readily from one side of the border to the other to be politically active in both countries. Let us now uh, look at the ethnography of the Iraq-Iran border from the Turkish border to where the Shatul Arab flows into the Persian Gulf. First, of course, there are the Kurds. Um, and here we know that Kurds live in four different countries. Again, nothing remarkable in and of itself, but take the Kurdish leader Mullah Mustafa Barzani. Um, he was born in Iraq, 
participated in Kurdish uprising against the new Iraqi state in the 1930s and early 1940s. When that movement was suppressed at the end of World War II, he led 1,000 Kurdish fighters and their families to Iran. In Iran, he became commander-in-chief of the Army of the Kurdish Republic that had been set up under Soviet occupation in western Azerbaijan. When that government uh, was crushed, he fled to the Soviet Union but returned to Iraq in 1958, resuming his struggle against the Iraqi government this time in 1974 with general su generous support from the very Iranian government that he had fought in 1946. When the Shah and Saddam Hussein made peace in Algiers in 1975, he and many of his followers sought refuge in Iran, where he was buried after he died in the United States in 1979. When the Iraqi government lost control over northern Iraq in the wake of the Gulf War, his body was exhumed from Iran and taken across the border to Iraq and reburied in Barzan in 1993. His son Massoud, since 2005 president of Iraqi Kurdistan's regional government, was born in Mahabad, the Iranian city that served as the capital of the Kurdish uh, Republic. So um, we find that we have one politician who is active in both countries. Now the establishment of an autonomous Kurdish administration in northern Iraq in the aftermath of the Gulf War has had a deep effect on Iranian Kurds. The mountainous northern part of the border between Iraq and Iran is difficult, if not impossible, to control. And traffic of people, goods, and weapons has been intense. People on the Iranian side of the border are well aware of what goes on in northern Iraq and watch Iraqi Kurdish television stations whose programming is not only in their own language but also much more entertaining than the dreary fare shown on Iranian television. Iranian Kurds, by and large, supported the reformist movement of uh, Khatami, who adopted a more conciliatory policy towards Iran's Sunnis. But when that movement fizzled out, while in Iraq a Kurd, a Kurd became president, uh, many Iranian Kurds began saying that in Iraq a Kurd can become president, whereas in Iran he cannot even become a provincial governor, Farmandar or Ostandar. The next uh, population I'm going to discuss uh, shares a space with the Kurds, namely the Assyrians and Chaldeans, the descendants of Mesopotamia's ancient Christian uh, populations. Um, as a French scholar of Middle Eastern Christianity put it, in Iran, quote, the history is not distinguishable from that of the Iraqi and Turkish branch of the community whose ancestral territory overlaps largely with that of the Kurds. When in Ottoman Iraq, Assyrians were under pressure in World War I, the Patriarch of the Church of the East led Assyrian tribes who were under attack to Iran. Over 120,000 Assyrians were involved, of whom 50,000 received permission to enter Iran, but the Patriarch was assassinated by Simcoe, chief of the Shakar Kurds, a bandit whom some Kurdish nationalists actually claim as a forebear. In the 1970s, the Syrians on both sides of the border became again embroiled in tensions between the Ba'athists and the Pahlavi regimes. Radio Urmia in Iran broadcast in Assyrian to Assyrians in Iraq, inciting them to join the Kurdish rebellion. Many did. And among these, many were executed by Saddam Hussein. And uh, when the Assyrian democratic movement of Iraq was crushed, many fled again to Iran and chose to live in Tehran and Urmia. There are other border communities as well, 
most importantly, the Mandaeans, a little religious group that lives, or the Sabaeans, this is two names of the same group, a little uh, religious community that straddles the border and that has suffered so much in recent upheavals because of 30 years of warfare that the very survival of the community is now in doubt. Uh, then there are Jews. Um, Arab and Iranian Jews uh, are jointly referred to as Mizrahi Jews, and among these Mizrahi Jews, those of Iraq and Iran share a history going back to Babylonian times. Throughout the uh, 19th and 20th century, the two communities maintained contact through trade, religious studies, and intermarriage. When the Paris-based Alliance Israelite Universelle established schools in Iran in the late 19th century, it was because the Jews of Hamadan and Tehran had made contact with its headquarters through the school the Alliance had established in Baghdad in 1864. During World War I, many Iraqi Jews relocated to Iran to avoid Ottoman subscription. And following the pogrom of 1940, about 10,000 Iraqi Jews fled to Iran, where they were given passports by the Iranian government. These Iraqi Jews maintained their Arab language and culture at home, but also became acculturated into the wider Iranian culture, effecting, in fact, a Judeo-Arabo-Persian synthesis. The lasting contribution of this minority within a minority to the larger society was the highly regarded Ettefaq school in Tehran, which had been founded by an Iraqi immigrant to Iran, Abdullah Meir Bassoun. Now, all of these uh, uh, linkages pale, of course, in comparison with the fact that about 90% of Iranians and about 55% of Iraqis uh, share a religion, namely 12 Shiism. Um, the uh, importance of uh, the link uh, comes from uh, the 18th century, when, because of the upheavals in Iran, many Iranian ulama fled to uh, the Ottoman Empire and established themselves in what was called the Atabot, uh, the four shrine cities of uh, Ottoman uh, Iraq. And the establishment of telegraph lines in the 1860s allowed Iranian believers to be in close contact with the religious authorities in Ottoman Iraq. And by the late 19th century, high-ranking Shiite clerics in Najaf were playing influential roles in Iranian politics, as seen in the Tobacco Rebellion of 1891-92 and the Constitutional Revolution of 1906, when Persian ulema in Najaf provided religious legitimation for representative government. And this, of course, led to a huge Persian presence uh, in Iraq, uh, because in the wake of the clerics, uh, many other Iranians also emigrated to uh, Iraq. Um, and um, while Najaf essentially retained an Arab character, Iranians constituted three-quarters of Karbala's population at the beginning of the uh, 20th century. Under the Ottomans, uh, Iranians maintained a flourishing community in Iraq and even enjoyed the privilege of extraterritorial jurisdiction, um, capitulations, uh, in other words. Um, many Shiite Arabs took Iranian nationality to avoid being conscripted into the Ottoman army. And when the Iraqi state was set up in the 1920s, those Arabs who were Iranian subjects but now opted to become citizens of the new state of Iraq, were given a different status by the new authorities, which openly and legally discriminated against them. While former subjects of the Ottoman Empire became authentic citizens, asli, those who had been Iranian subjects became, one supposes, inauthentic citizens, a status their children inherited. 
with disastrous consequences in the future, as we will see in a minute. Now, given this long-standing presence of Persians in um, uh, Ottoman Iraq, there were an inordinate amount of intermarriages. And uh, the members of the Persian community intermarried into urban Arab Shi'i uh, society and was, in fact, bicultural. At this point, it is quite impossible to say who is purely Iranian and who is purely Arab. The very notion of these categories must be questioned. Many clerical families had branches in both countries, the most prominent of, who, of them, of course, being the Sadr family, Sad which originated in the Jabal Amil, now the southern Lebanon. But in 1929, Muhammad al-Sadr, an Iraqi mujtahid, became president of Iraq's Senate and then briefly even prime minister in 1948. Another member of the family was his grandnephew Muhammad Bagr al-Sadr, a major mujtahid who was killed by Saddam Hussein in 1980. More recently, Muqtada al-Sadr rose to political prominence in the wake of Saddam Hussein's Astra in 2003. The Iranian branch of the family also produced distinguished ulema. Muhammad, uh, Muhammad Assad's cousin, Ayatollah Sadveddin Assad, was a major mujtahid in Rome, and one of his sons, Musa, went on to a remarkable career in uh, Lebanon. In other words, the presence of so many Iranians in the shrine cities has left a mark uh, on both countries, and even on Iranian onomastics, as the surnames Gharavi and Ha'eri mean, respectively, hailing from Najaf and Karbala. The aftermath of the World War I saw a rise of British influence in both Iraq and Iran, the demise of Ottoman and Qajar rule in Iraq and Iran, and the establishment of governments in Iraq and Iran that propagated Arab and Persian nationalism, marginalizing the Shi'i clergy in the process. For this reason, in the 1910s and 1920s, Iraq and Iran constituted two arenas in the same battle for the Shi'i ulama. Uh, the best example of the irrelevance of uh, nationality can be seen in the aftermath of the uh, uprising of 1920. In 1923, the new Iraqi government expelled three leading mujtahids from Iraq who all went to Iran, two of them Persians and one Arab. Later on, when uh, the uh, mujtahids were given the option of returning to Iraq, provided they stayed out of politics, the Arabs stayed in Iran and the two Persians went back. Hmm? They had obviously not heard of, um, of the ancient hostilities. Hmm? Now, the Arab who stayed in Iran, Ayatollah Khalisi, had a son uh, who took the family name Khalisi Zadeh, hmm? son of uh, Khalisi, and uh, subsequently he was active in politics both in Iran and after 1949 in Iraq. Um, another veteran of the anti-British uprising of 1920 who later became prominent in Iranian politics was Ayatollah Abul Ghassim Khashani, uh, an early protege of uh, Khalisi. Born in Iraq, he was active in the anti-British uprising, went to Iran and became active um, um, in Iran. And we know that when he was briefly uh, in exile in Lebanon, uh, people from both Iraq and Iran came to uh, see him. In our own time, Ayatollah Mahmoud Hashemi Shahrudi exemplifies this binationalism. Born and raised to a family of Persian origin in Iraq, he went to Iran soon after the Iranian Revolution and became the vice president of the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, Syria. 
a major anti-Saddam party headquartered in Iran. He then resigned from the position in 1999 to become the head of Iran's judiciary, which he remained uh, until 2009. I think one would be hard-pressed to find other pairs of countries in which so many individuals have played a political role in both countries. Um, now, one thing uh, uh, that is often mentioned is that within the Shi'i clergy, uh, tensions are diagnosed between those who are Persians and those who are Arab. Sure, why not? But let us, not let us not forget that these tensions exist even between Persians in Iran and Arabs in Iraq. Um, Persians in Rome and Mashhad have had a long history of competition. And uh, the long-standing uh, tensions between the Hakim and the Sadr families uh, in Iraq, uh, both of whom Arab, go back for centuries. So uh, I see no reason to ascribe the tensions between one cleric who happens to be Arab and another cleric who happens to be Persian to their ethnicity, if within the ethnicity we also have uh, tensions. And the best example, again, is Muqtada al-Sadr, who had the reputation of being an Arab nationalist, an anti-Iranian Arab nationalist. But then, when he was in trouble, where does he go in 2007 to further his studies? He goes to Qom, to Iran. So much for his Arab nationalism. Uh, there are two other communities that I want to mention. Uh, one are the Sheikhis, a little 12er Shi'i sect, um, which had its origins in Iraq, but became uh, spread to Iran. In 1981, in the aftermath of the Iranian Revolution, uh, the head of the uh, sect, uh, Abdul Reza Ibrahimi, was assassinated in Kerman, and the leadership shifted to an Arab alim in Basra, uh, Sayyid Ali Musawi. And throughout the Iran-Iraq war, Iranian sheikhis maintained discrete contact with their head in Basra. Finally, there are the Baha'is, whose uh, religion also gives uh, equal importance to uh, Iraq and Iran. Let us not forget that the Persian prophet Baha'u'llah um, declared his prophecy while in exile uh, in uh, Baghdad. And that's why the Baha'i pilgrimage actually consists of visits to the house of the Bab in Shiraz, which was destroyed, torn down after the revolution, and the house of Baha'u'llah in uh, Baghdad. Um, it would seem then that among all the ethnic and religious communities of Iraq and Iran, only Iraq's Sunnis and Iran's Zoroastrians share no cultural references. The latter are so few in number, the Zoroastrians are so few in number that they would, know that, uh, they would not matter uh, for the purposes of this chapter, were it not for the fact that pre-revolutionary Iranian nationalism whose effect survived the revolution, is infused with nostalgia for all things Zoroastrian. Iraq's Sunni Arabs matter more, of course, and they would seem to have no specific cultural ties with uh, Iranians. Although, here again, one might point out that the epicenter of Sunni spirituality in Baghdad, and I should point out that Baghdad is a Persian word meaning God-given, an old Middle Persian word meaning God-given, the center of Sunni spirituality is the shrine of Abdul Qadir al-Jailani. Jailani is Arabized of Gilani. So uh, he is the founder of the Qadiriya order of Sufism, who was born in Gilan and went to Baghdad at the age of 18. 
So um, I think I've uh, shown that at the level of uh, population, of actual people, uh, there has always been a lot of back and forth, common references, uh, and so on. But uh, my next point is to show that this has actually led to uh, the appearance of many cultural affinities between uh, the two countries. In many ways, Iraq is more like Iran than it is like Morocco, or even like Egypt. And I'm going to uh, illustrate uh, this uh, point. First, there's language. Persian has, of course, a great many Arabic uh, loanwords, and while classical Arabic has far fewer Persian loanwords, vernacular Iraqi Arabic has far more Persian loanwords than classical Arabic, to the point where even the words, the letters pe and che, are quite common in, um, uh, in Iraqi Arabic. I'm told that uh, the um, ubiquitous street food of Baghdad is called pacha, which comes, of course, from Persian kallepache, the sheep's head and trotters. Um, this leads me to cuisine. Um, there's a wonderful book, cookbook, called The Best of Baghdad Cooking with Treats from Tehran. And uh, the author... Uh, writes in the foreword, I was born in Baghdad and spent some time in Tehran. Throughout these years, I enjoyed the same cuisine because political boundaries do not erase cultural, especially culinary uh, ties. Once, uh, when I entreated an Iraqi friend of mine to take me to an Iraqi restaurant in London, um, he said it wasn't worth it because all the food was Iranian anyway. Uh, I said, well, you know, I want to see the Iraqi touch to uh, Iranian food. Um, so uh, uh, he finally consented, and I had those few dishes that did not seem uh, familiar. About architecture, I've already spoken. Uh, the architecture of, uh, the, uh, um, of Mesopotamia is very much like the architecture of the uh, Iranian plateau. Let me now come to music. The close kinship between classical Arabic and classical Persian music, based on the maqam and the dasgah, has often been pointed out. Until the 16th century, Iranian and Arab music were part of the same tradition, which can be seen in the fact that many Arab maqams have Persian names, Nahawand, Isfahan, Rast, and many Persian gushes have Arabic names, Hejaz, Hosseini, Mansuri. It's the advent of the Safavid dynasty in Iran that curtailed personal contacts between Arab and Iranian musicians, as a result of which Iranian music began to evolve separately. But in Iraq, classical music continued to evince many common traits with the Iran, and the typical Iraqi ensemble, quote, lacks the qanun and may exclude the oud, two instruments that are elsewhere in the Arab world, the leading instruments of classical music. On the contrary, they do have the santur and ney, two instruments widely used in uh, Iran. And the poems sung on the occasion of performing in Maram include not only Arabic words, but also translations of Omar Khayyam and Hafiz. As an ethnomusicologist uh, put it, these common elements constitute an example of the close ties between the culture of the Mesopotamian lowlands and the Iranian highlands. 
In fact, the great desert to the west of Mesopotamia was often a stronger barrier to cultural continuity than the Persian mountain ranges to the east. No wonder then that at the height of the Iran-Iraq war, a British social worker found a cassette store in Ramadi, a largely Sunni Arab town, and in this cassette store he found a, quote, wide range of Iranian music. Um, another uh, area that I want to mention is Muharram rituals. You know, the flagellation, Sinizani, and so on. And these, of course, exist among Shiites all over the world, all the way from Trinidad to Sumatra. But, uh, again, some people have tried to distinguish between typically Persian rituals and typically per Arab rituals. Um, what I found interesting is that when I read a work of a Lebanese Shi, he mentioned rituals as practiced in Iraq and Iran. So from the Lebanese point of view, there was no Arab and Persian ritual. There was the common rituals of Iraq and Iran, which were different from the rituals that existed in uh, Lebanon. Um, so uh, <coughs> having shown the existence of overarching loyalties and the existing existence of many cultural affinities, let me now come to the issue of Iraqi and Iranian nationalism. Since roughly the beginning of the century, the, since roughly the beginning of the 20th century, Iranian state elites have posited that Persian language and culture are what the Iranian nation is all about, replacing a territorial conception of Iran that existed previously. From the outset, this new Iranian nationalism was defined in contradistinction to Arabs. This was a convenient way for, secularize, for secularists to criticize Islam without saying so. As uh, Islam had been brought to Iran uh, by Arabs, but since it was still adhered by the overwhelming majority of Iranians, one couldn't blame it directly. One of the founders of modern Iranian secular nationalism, and personally I would add secular racism, was Mirza Arakhane Kermani, who depicted Arabs as, quote, Ignorant, savage lizard-eaters, bloodthirsty, barefoot camel-riders, desert-dwelling nomads who prior to the Prophet's advent lived from theft, raid, and murder. Wonderful example of understatement. And since the Arab conquests, he wrote, Iranians had lost their good looks, their proud and happy faces, and their elegant and well-shaped figures. The view of the Arab as the constitutive other gained currency among much of the secular Iranian middle class brought up on history textbooks that glorified pre-Islamic culture. These nationalism-inspired prejudices easily connected with pre-modern negative views of the Arab. Secular Iranians failed to realize that the connotation for Arab, especially of its plural Arab, in pre-nationalist times was that of the Bedouin, of the uncivilized Bedouin of the desert, and not of the sophisticated city dwellers of Baghdad, Damascus, Cairo, or Fez. And these sophisticated city dwellers of Beirut and Cairo probably had exactly the same view of the Arab, of the Bedouins, as uh, the Persians had. Just as the word Turk, which were Iranians, meant something unsophisticated peasant 
meant exactly the same thing for Ottomans until the late 19th century. No Turkish-speaking Ottoman Muslim would have dreamt of calling himself a Turk. It was almost an insult. The same with Arab. Appreciation and respect for the culture of urban Arabs existed throughout Iranian history. Many Iranians were great experts in Arabic grammar, in Arabic literature, in Arabic poetry. And this appreciation and respect declined as the state educational system de-emphasized the teaching of the Arabic language, which had never been foreign to educated Iranians. It is only when European notions of nationalism fused with pre-existing consciousness of cultural distinctiveness, I'm not denying that Persians and Arabs in pre-modern times knew that there was a difference between them, when European notions of nationalism fused with pre-existing consciousness of cultural distinctiveness, that in the Iranian mind, the Arab nomad of the desert became conflated with all those who speak Arabic, from Morocco to Oman. In Iraq, too, demarcation from Iran was a key point in the Arab nationalism propagated by the state elites, who, being mostly Sunni, had few overarching ties with Iranians. The largely Shi'i uprising of 1920 marginalized Iraq's majority community politically, and given the close cultural and religious ties of that community with Iran, anti-Iranianism became a front for anti-Shiism. That the Iranian state did not recognize Iraq until 1929, arguing that it was not truly a sovereign, and what's more, insisted on keeping extraterritorial capitulations for its citizens in Iraq at a time when it was denouncing European capitulations in Iran, a clear case of double standards, did not help matters as far as uh, Iraqi elites were concerned. The euphemism for Iranian and Shiites was shu'ubi, a term that originally referred to 9th century literary movements that had extolled the cultural merits of non-Arabs but that then came to connote anybody suspected of not being totally committed to the Arab nation, including many Arab Shi'is. Now, one common theme in Iranian and Iraqi nationalist constructs is that the other country is in league with one's enemies, meaning the West. The idea that foreign governments are puppets of the major powers is, of course, endemic uh, to the Middle East. Elkar Brown has called this the puppeteer theory of international relations, which many people in the Middle East uh, adhere to. Foreigners are always puppets of the West. Um, the Ba'athist takeover of 1969 gave a fillip to official Iranophobia uh, in uh, Iraq. But one must remember that the deep causes of this hostility lay elsewhere. On the one hand, the opposition of the Ba'athists to the Shiite majority, and on the other hand, the Cold War in which Iraq and Iran found themselves on opposite sides. The heaviest price for these geopolitical entanglements was paid by the few remaining Iranian residents of Iraq and the many more inauthentic Iraqi citizens. And between 1969 and 1989, hundreds of thousands were expelled from the country and deported to the Iranian border, most of them incapable of speaking Persian. The anti-Iranian animus peaked when the Ba'athist regime presented the September 1980 Iraqi attack on Iran as a reenactment of the Battle of Qadisiyya, in which Muslims had inflicted the first major defeat on the Sasanian Empire. 
Saddam even built a huge monument depicting the eternal battle between Arabs and Persians, conveniently forgetting that in 1975 he had sent a message to the Shah urging him to distance himself from the United States and in this message he had argued what I've been arguing all along. Saddam argued that Iran and Iraq had common religious, cultural and family connections and that its border populations were related to each other both in Kurdistan and Khuzestan creating solidarities that should be used to unite Iraq and Iran so that they could stand up to the West which deemed both countries inferior. In 1981, the Iraqi government issued a decree, a decree offering $8,000 to any Iraqi who divorced his quote-unquote Iranian wife. And the anti-Persian campaign became frankly racist with the publication of a f- pamphlet titled, quote, Three Whom God Should Never Have Created, Persian Jews and Flies. Uh, the author was a close relative of Saddam Hussein. <coughs> who, with the subtlety of uh, the family, avert that Persians were animals God created in the shape of humans, Jews a mixture of the dirt and leftover of diverse peoples, and flies a trifling creation, the purpose of whose creation was not apparent. The Islamic Republic did not reciprocate this ethnic name-calling, as it has in theory been committed to Muslim Brotherhood. But by 1979, notions of Iranian civilizational superiority had been internalized, even by the pious Muslims who volunteered to fight against uh, Saddam Hussein, (coughs) including non-Persians. An Arab-Iranian prisoner of war, a Khuzestani, told a British social worker that the Arabs of Iran were better Muslims than the Arabs of Iraq. Although the government did not resort to Arabophobia in its propaganda effort against Saddam Hussein's regime, the hundreds of thousands of Iraqi refugees found it difficult to be accepted by the population. They are not called Panohande, refugee, but actually Moaved, expelli, a word that has acquired a pejorative connotation. Uh, for Iranians, as if it was their fault uh, that they had been expelled to Iran. The fact that the more fortunate of these immigrants had family ties to the ruling clerics, enabling them to get government jobs, did not endear them to the population either, especially to the secular middle class brought up on anti-Arab Iranian nationalism. As a result, many of these expellees left again, and chose to settle in Lebanon, uh, Syria, or the uh, Emirates. <coughs> now, given the overtly anti-Persian propaganda of the Basist regime, and the anti-Arab predisposition of many educated Iranians, it is astonishing how many dissident groups in both countries chose, quote-unquote, enemy territory as a basis of operation, even before the outbreak of the war in 1980. In the 1970s, the Iraqi government tolerated the presence of Ayatollah Khomeini and helped the Tudeh party, Iran's Communist Party. And after the war began, the moderate National Movement for Resistance of Shapur Bakhtiar and the radical People's Mujahideen of Iran were both active uh, in Iraq, with the former operating a radio station, which in the early 1980s 
regularly featured broadcasts by Iran's most celebrated comic novelist, Elijah Pesach Zad, the author of Doijan Napoleon. Obviously, he felt no compunction about being in Iraq and broadcasting to Iran. On the Iraqi side, the Supreme Council of the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, Siri, was based in Iran, and one of the two Kurdish parties, Jalal Talibani's Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, maintained close contacts with the Islamic Republic as well. Both groups are now major players in post-Saddam uh, post uh, Iraq. But although some Iraqis and some Iranians found the quote-unquote hereditary enemy more congenial than their political adversaries at home, let us not forget that at the end of the day, Iraqis, including Shiite Arabs, fought loyalty, loyally for Saddam Hussein, and Iranians, including many of Khuzestan's Arabs, fought loyally for Khomeini. In fact, one of uh, the Islamic Republic's uh, ministers of defense, uh, Sham Khali, is an ethnic Arab from uh, Khuzestan. By the 1980s, therefore, the modern nation-state and its requirements had been internalized by both Iranians and Iraqis. What remains to be done is to demonstrate that these nationalist constructs uh, are recent, are of recent vintage, uh, not an avatar of an age-old uh, conflict. And since I have relatively little time left, I will be uh, brief for the remainder of my uh, paper. Uh, the proponents of the ancient hostility thesis often begin with the wars that the founder of the Persian Empire, Cyrus, fought against the, his Mesopotamian neighbors, the Babylonians. Say, since Cyrus fought the Babylonians, people from the plateau and people from Mesopotamia have been fighting with each other. What this conveniently forgets is before, that before Cyrus fought the Babylonians, he had fought the equally Aryan Medes, and the Babylonians had spent their time fighting the equally Semitic Assyrians. Indeed, far from constituting an antinomian relationship, that of the pre-Islamic Persians and their Semitic neighbors to the West was actually one of fruitful cultural interaction. The Iranian Spring Festival, Nowruz in Persian, Nevruz in Kurdish, which is for most Iranians a symbol, a symbol of Iranian nationhood, is a local manifestation of a spring ritual that used to be celebrated all over Western Asia, including Mesopotamia. In fact, the Persian calendar, Farvadin to Esfand, is based on the signs of the zodiac, which were invented in Babylonia. The columns and reliefs of Persepolis, which for many Iranian nationalists of today, are the quintessential emblem of Iranian national identity. Go to any Iranian restaurants and you have columns of Persepolis. These uh, columns clearly show the influence of earlier Mesopotamian monumental arts. Go to any museum, look at the Assyrian and the Babylonian uh, statues, and you're reminded of Persepolis. And centuries before Muslim Persians adopted the Arabic alphabet, Middle Iranian languages, such as Middle Persian, Parthian, and even Sogdian of Central Asia, were written in the Aramaic script developed in Mesopotamia in the 8th century BC. Uh, as for Arabs proper, their relationships with Iranians before Islam was not one of hostility either. Uh, Herodotus reports that the king of the Arabs facilitated the conquest of Egypt by the son of Cyrus, and many Sasanian kings sent their sons to be educated at the court of the Arab Lachmids, uh, most famously Bahram V, 
who spent his youth at the court of King Munzer ibn Numan, the Lachmet uh, king of uh, Iraq, who indeed helped him gain, gain his throne in Tessaphon after a court cabal had tried to put a different prince on these. Now, I submit to you that a Persian emperor does not send his son to be educated at the court of a ruler whom he deems to be a barbarian. Um, For many modern uh, Iranian intellectuals, the foundational event that justifies anti-Arab resentment is the conquest of the Sasanian Empire by the Arabs in the mid-7th century. But quite aside from the fact that the Sasanian Empire was not overrun by Iraqis, but by Arabs from the Arabian Peninsula who had first overrun Iraq itself, It is doubtful that in their own mind, these Arabs who conquered Iran did so qua Arabs. It is far more likely that they thought of themselves as Muslims, first and foremost. They conquered the world in the name of Islam. And when a political entity named Iran reappeared in the wake of the Mongol conquests, only in the 13th century that we again have a geographic political unit called Iran, opposition against Arabs played no part in it. In the conclusion to his book on the evolution of the term, the Italian Iranist Gerardo Nioli writes, and here I quote, the historical development of the idea of Iran is, in actual fact, complex and far from straightforward. Suffice it to mention the part played by the Mongols, and in any case by non-Iranian ethnic groups. And he concludes, and a perspective based on a presumed opposition between Arabs and Iranians would be equally erroneous. Um, In my paper I then uh, discuss two toponymical Uh, arenas in which Arabs and uh, Persians oppose each other in this state uh, today in the name of their respective nationalisms. One is the uh, pair Khuzestan uh, Arabistan, the other one is the pair Persian Gulf uh, Arabian Gulf and here very briefly Arabistan and Khuzestan are not the same thing. Arabistan is only a part of Khuzestan Um, and Khuzestan is itself an Arabic term Uh, The old Iranian name for the area was Susiana. Uh, The word uh, Khuzestan comes uh, from the Arab word Khuz, which was the name of an ethnic group which may have been the success, the descendants of the Alamites. So Khuz, the area of the Khuz becomes Khuzestan. The plural of Khuzestan is Akhwaz. And um, the market town where these Khuz uh, held market was Souq al-Akhwaz, which in due time became Ahwaz, which in due time became Ahwaz. So uh, the idea that Khuzestan is 100% Persian um, is also untenable. Um, as far as Persian Gulf and Arab Gulf and Arabian Gulf, uh, there are mentions of uh, Sinus Arabicus on ancient maps. Uh, the by far most common term for that body of water was Sinus Persicus, yes. But um, until modern times, nobody registered uh, geographical terms. And uh, for that reason, um, the Gulf had actually four different names. Uh, there was the Gulf of Basra, the B- uh, Gulf of Patif, 
the Arabian Gulf and uh, the Persian Gulf. Um, and besides, the people who live there call it the Gulf, Khalij. They are Khalijis. In conclusion, what I've tried to show is that anti-Arab Iranian nationalism and anti-Persian Iraqi nationalism are ideological constructs that are not the logical consequence of immemorial ethnic, or what is even more absurd, racial hostilities. They are products of cultural and political elites that had an interest in undoing the multifarious intersocietal linkages connecting the populations on both sides of the border, in Mesopotamia and on the Iranian plateau. Iranian and Iraqi nationalism both fit the model so eloquently enunciated more than a century ago by the Irish classicist Gilbert Murray. Gilbert Murray wrote as follows. In almost every nation in the world, from the Americans to the Chinese and the Finns, the same whisper from below the threshold sounds incessantly in men's ears. We are the pick and flower of nations. The only nation that is really generous and brave and just. Other nations may have fine characteristics, but we only are normal and exactly right. Other nations boast and are aggressive. We are modest and claim only what is our barest due, though we cannot help see seeing our own general superiority. And even unprejudiced observer will admit that our territories ought to be enlarged. We are, above all things, reasonable. It is only those enviable and lying foreigners who dare to dispute the fact of our reasonableness. These nationalist constructs were transmitted to the population by the educational systems of the two states, and it is not astonishing that they have been internalized. Political con conflicts that had their origin in geopolitical rivalries, both global, like the Cold War, and regional, the contest for hegemony in the Gulf, and in ideological oppositions, left-leaning republicanism versus monarchism, or left-leaning republicanism versus Islamism, added to the plausibility of these constructs. They made them more believable. The fall of the Ba'athist regime in 2003 could have put an end to the growing estrangement between Iranians and Iraqis, and on the level of state-to-state -state relations, it certainly did. But at the popular level, the watershed of 2003 had the opposite effect, for two reasons. On the Arab side, Sunnis have not been able to come to terms with the fact that the Shiite majority is now politically hegemonic in Iraq. And the anger is once again directed against Iran as the sponsor of the Shi'is. On the Iranian side, the determination of the Iranian government that the U.S. effort should fail in Iraq has led to a very high degree of intervention in Iraqi affairs an intervention that is facilitated by the trans-societal linkages that I discussed earlier. With hundreds of thousands of pilgrims going from Iran to Karbala and Najaf, you can smuggle in a huge number of uh, revolutionary guards. And um, these people manipulate matters in Iraq. A close Iraqi friend of mine, who is a member of the uh, ruling Shi'i party, told me that... Um, before the election four years ago, which the Shiite alliance won with a large margin, 
uh, some Iranians connected with the Revolutionary Guards set up a seminar in Baghdad to teach the Iraqis how to rig election results. Um, we now know that uh, the Iranian government is pretty good at that. And uh, then I said, uh, but, uh, uh, I mean, you would have won anyway. He said, yes, but not by that huge a margin. And then he added, he was an eyewitness to this, uh, he added that uh, at this seminar organized by Iranian uh, revolutionary guards, there were representatives from Hamas and Hezbollah also. Now, um, many Iraqis blame Iran for the sectarianism that has gripped Iraqi society, pointing out that Iran has delivered arms to a number of Iraqi groups that fight each other, both to Sunnis and to Shi'is. While some Iraqis have become Iranian clients, many others, including many Shi'is, have come to dislike Iran with an intensity greater than that shown during the Iran-Iraq war. During the Iran-Iraq war, uh, the Iraqi government um, propagated a song called Qadisiyah, which was a celebration of uh, the attack on Iran, likening it to the uh, attack on Iran in the 7th century. This was broadcast on radio, television, etc. Now it's the young Shi'i males of Basra who sing it on a daily basis. Uh, which they didn't uh, in those years. Now, given the prevalence of nationalist constructs on both sides, the instant experts that international crises usually generate should perhaps be excused for echoing these constructs in their analyses, especially since the Iraqis and Iranians they meet tend to be secular educated people who are more often than not ardent nationalists. But one may also wonder whether the references to ancient history that we found in New York Times articles and so on are not merely a way to demonstrate one's credentials as an expert. I'm not a journalist. I know my history too. And these folks have been hating each other for 5,000 years. And that's why uh, I think it is the ethical duty of every scholar with pretensions to basic decency to debunk such constructs, even though one has no choice but to admit that they have been internalized. To debunk such constructs, rather than, as the above-quoted New York Times articles by Tom Friedman put it, bank on them. Thank you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was wondering, aside from the clerical community in the Iraqi and Iranian society, of those groups, which do you think would be most prominent in maybe determining the trajectory of future relationships? Apart from the clerical one, at this point, nothing. Yeah. Because the Kurds basically do their own thing. The Kurds have a the Kurds of Iraq. Uh, have an ambiguous relationship with Iran, uh, but uh, they act not in the interest of the Iraqi state as a whole, but mostly in the interest of the autonomous northern part of uh, Iraq. 
So I don't think their policies would uh, have a direct influence on uh, uh, Iranian-Iraqi uh, relations. And even the clergy isn't that important anymore. Uh, because uh, Saddam Hussein seriously weakened the Shi'i clergy in Iraq. There's very little left of the Hausa of Najaf. Moreover, the Iranian government has poured billions into building its own clerical network. So uh, at this point, the Shi'i clerical hierarchy is thoroughly dominated uh, by uh, the Iranians. Yes, sir. Hmm. Um, Iraq more or less succeeding in the next few years yeah. in becoming at least an electoral democracy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it would have a, um, you know, a uh, ripple effect. One thing that might happen is uh, that uh, if Iraq becomes an electoral democracy and uh, um, you know, with, with this recent election I think the allegations of the uh, opposition that there has been rigging sounds very plausible uh, to me based on what my friend told me a year ago. Um, but uh, if there is... Uh, first of all, I don't believe that electoral democracy is possible in a country like Iraq. Let's say if we have a government with a certain amount of pluralism and a government that is vaguely representative of uh, a minimal a polyarchy as opposed to an electoral uh, democracy, one thing that might happen is the uh, uh, revival of the uh, Shi'i centers of learning uh, in Najaf, which might attract certain clerics from Iran, uh, because the clergy in Iran right now is deeply disaffected uh, with the government, but it has become powerless. Um, and uh, so we might have a kind of migration again to uh, Najaf, uh, which would further delegitimize the Islamic Republic, which is after all based on clerical supremacy. Right. Uh, however, um, I don't think it would weaken it um, dramatically. And uh, I think a lot depends on how independent such a pluralist Iraq could be from Iran, because one thing, in my mind, that drives the Iraqi government into the Iranian arms is the cold shoulder that other Arab governments give them. Um, Iraqis don't get visas to travel to many Arab countries right now. Right? And uh, if a pluralist Iraq is welcomed back into the fold of Arab nations, then I think that will give them uh, the wherewithal to you know, have friendly relations with Iran, but not be under the uh, control of uh, the Iranians, and that might lead to a certain ripple effect on, uh, on Iran. Yes, ma'am. Um, I don't think there is much of that. Um, I mean, it's already Islamic, uh, except that there were ties. Uh, that uh, you know, in many, in many, in Basra, for instance, uh, a woman who goes unveiled is already harassed. Um, the Christians are leaving in droves. Churches are being blown up any day, every day. So um, I think it's already going there. Uh, except that the form will not be wilayat al-faqih. The form will not be uh, a clerical government, but a uh, kind of gradual Islamization of public life um, 
due to electoral success, successes of religious parties. But having just said that, I will also immediately contradict myself, because I have the sabbath of always coming down on both sides of an issue, uh, by saying that recent polls suggest that secular Iraqi nationalism is on the rise. Where two or three years ago, uh, people would identify themselves primarily with the community, uh, identification with the Iraqi state is now rising. And this bodes well, I think, for the consolidation of a stable uh, uh, Iraqi pluralist uh, Iraqi, uh, Iraqi state, and I think also goes against the idea of too much of an Islamic uh, republic. And we must also not forget that uh, Iraq has bled tremendously. You, know, you go to certain neighborhoods of London, you think you're in uh, little Baghdad, and most of the people who have led were relatively secular people. So uh, the, the percentage of secular, secular people, which was low to begin with, is even lower than it used to be. So this is a deeply religious uh, society, and uh, to the extent that they have representative government, the government will represent that. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the trend that I see is that uh, the Turks have adopted a very, uh, a relatively um, intelligent policy by trying to penetrate uh, northern Iraq economically. Uh, they help the development. Of, uh, of northern Iraq, and uh, this ties the interests of the Kurds who run northern Iraq to those of Turkey. And since much of the anti-Turkish resentment in Turkish Kurdistan is economically based, a prosperous northern Iraq will have a spillover effect on southeastern Turkey. Right? And uh, so I think that while the issue of ethnic nationalism uniting Kurds is always around, uh, there's a counter tendency here by this uh, sort of peaceful economic uh, penetration of northern Iraq. Yes, sir. Would you comment on the level of interaction, mm. cultural, economic, whatever, mm. among Shia and Sunnis in Iraq yeah. before and after the American invasion? Yeah. Well, I, I can do so, but with a certain amount of hesitation, because uh, I'm an Iran specialist, not an Iraq specialist. Uh, so, uh, I think what we see is that uh, the 1920s, the founding of the Iraqi state, uh, coincides with the self-marginalization of the Shi'is. By rising against the state they, and, and sort of uh, preaching abstention in elections, they basically let the Sunnis of Iraq, the Arab Sunnis, take power. Now, under the monarchy, in the 1940s and 1950s, this begins to be less important. Uh, you know, in the 1940s, there are even briefly two prime ministers who are Shi'is. And one thing that helps the Shi'i integration into Iraq is the exodus of the Jews after the founding of the uh, uh, State of Israel, when many businesses 
that had to be you know, sold at a very low price by the Jews who were leaving were bought up by uh, Shi'is, creating a middle class. And uh, the best example of this sort of uh, Shi'i uh, rise to prominence in Iraqi society is the Chalabi family, um, Ahmad Chalabi um, and so on. However, the revolution of 1958 put a damper uh, on this gradual uh, integration because the Arab nationalists who came to power, and ultimately the Ba'athists, saw a congruence between Sunnism and Arab nationalism. Right? And while the rank and file of the Ba'athist party included many Shi'is, the leadership did not. Nonetheless, um, pre-1980, I think the more important date is not 2003, but 1980, the beginning of the war. Because Iraqi society essentially has been at war for 30 years now. Right? There has not been a year of peace between 1980 and 2010. And before 1980, I think the tremendous educational achievements of the Ba'ath uh, favored a social coming together. Not at the political level, but a social coming together. There were lots of intermarriages. Uh, and sort of if you were a middle-class educated Baghdadi, it was sort of considered um, old-fashioned to be um, too concerned with uh, sectarian issues. Right? And in a sense, it's the upheavals, the 30 years of upheavals, that have driven wedges between the communities because as all other authorities and sort of trade unions, political parties, societies, clubs, as civil society disappears, what is left for an individual to latch on to is the tribe, the ethnic group, the community, and so on and so forth, right? And so I think it's, uh, it's the upheavals of the last 30 years that have, uh, that have created sectarianism in um, in Iraq, but of course the sad thing is that ethnic uh, cohabitation or the sort of peaceful interaction between the communities takes a very long time to come about and can be destroyed very quickly. And once it's destroyed, it's very difficult to put it back together again. I mean, with thesis in Bosnia, in Sarajevo, 40% of all marriages before the Yugoslav war were intermarriages. Now, many years after the war, the communities are still split. Once the hostility is created, it's very difficult to, uh, to undo it. And that's why I'm, I'm sort of uh, uh, favorably impressed by these, by these data, which my friend, the sociologist Mansour Moadel, sent me some time ago, that the sense of an Iraqi identity is, uh, is strengthening at the expense of uh, communitarian uh, identities. Um, but I'm not sure that the Iranian government is happy about this because um, I, have, I have no proof for this, but I have the hunch that the Iranian government has decided to keep Iraq weak. And one way to keep it weak is uh, to make sure that these uh, hostilities persist. Yes, sir. Well, what's happening is that the uh, uh, that uh, just I mean, first of all, to give you proof 
for uh, what I'm saying. The recent election, um, very one or two only of the top clerics actually congratulated the winner of the elections. Right? Um, they have on occasion criticized the president. Um, have, has anybody gone to the streets to uh, demonstrate against the president because the Ayatollahs have called for it? No. People go to the street and demonstrate for other reasons. I think the clergy have lost much of their social mobilizing uh, power. And um, I think, well, no, I'm not being very original by saying this, that what we see is a rise in the power of the, of the Revolutionary Guard, which is a mixture of a military government and a mafioso government. It's not, it's not exactly a military government because of the uh, deep Im implication of many of the revolutionary guards in the economic life of the country, smuggling, uh, all sorts, more money laundering in Dubai and Kuwait uh, and so on. So uh, it's an odd mix between uh, a military takeover and a, uh, a takeover by an economic mafia. Well, the clergy, uh, well, one cleric obviously still has an awful lot of power, and that's the uh, supreme leader, right? Uh, the supreme leader and uh, those who agree with him still exercise uh, very high power. Uh, but I think as a social institution, I mean, uh, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, see, for instance, in the last election, oddly enough, the most liberal of the candidates was a cleric, Karubi, right? Look how they treat him. Right? They just attacked his house. So um, the mere, uh, this is something that's you know, under the Shah, a cleric, even an oppositionist cleric, still had a certain untouchability, a certain hormat. Khomeini was not assassinated, he was exiled. Right? Um, now this hormat, this untouchability has sort of disappeared. Right? So I think that they have lost the social prestige. Uh, that they had. Every now and then you get very, very, uh, very courageous individuals who will uh, stand up to uh, the government. But I think as a, an institution of civil society, uh, they have lost their, I mean, they're being dragged along by the movement. They're not leading the movement. Is it a good thing that courage is losing power, or is it actually... Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah. The clergy having the power yeah. enforcing all the Islamic rules and all yeah. these issues were one of the big issues. Now, yeah. now they're losing power to Abbas to who? Yeah, but the, but, the, but, the, uh, but the strictures are still being enforced. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, one has, the, one has the choice between many different forms of bad. And, uh, you know, one day one gets up and thinks this is worse. The other day one gets up and thinks the other is worse. Uh, I had a very... Uh, interesting encounter just before the presidential election. I was at the wedding of a friend of mine in Los Angeles and there were a number of us were sitting around a table. Uh, there was a Baha'i couple and a couple of former Fadal Yechal and myself. And the five of us rooted for Karubi. And so I said, look at the, uh, look at the uh, paradox of Iranian history. Here we are, two Baha'is, two ex-Fadal Yechal and my liberal self. And of the four candidates, there's one who is a cleric and we're all for him. 30 years after, for, after 30 years of saying that the clerics should go, we root for the clerics. So uh, there you are. Yes? Uh, I want to go back to the fundamental question. Yeah. Uh, well, 
I fully agree that there is a racist practice hmm. that has been at least a hundred years old yeah. in dehumanizing the other, yeah. dehumanizing the Arab. Yeah. But the notion that this is a recent phenomenon, yeah. that it is a result of the emergence of the national idea a la modernity, yeah. I don't think uh, holds to scrutiny. Look at Chardonnay. Yeah. The most evil character in Chardonnay is Zahok. Mm-hmm. Every racist language you read about the Arabs, Chardonnay has and more. Read the letter to Van Rossum. So the notion that this is something that is created in the last 100 years and this elite that wanted to create this false nationalism, mm. I don't think, and look at the writings of Corban about Iranian nationalism. Mm. Uh, Shiism as a form of Iranian nationalism against that, mm. against uh, Arab domination. So I think the issue is more uh, complicated than the anecdotal evidence that you provide, which is very uh, wonderful. But I think it goes deeper than the last 100 years. And you could bring just as many anecdotal evidence on the other side. Mm-hmm. And some of the facts you provide here, in fact, prove the opposite of your thesis that there's more that linkage. The fact that Mu'avid would immediately catch that negative aura. These are Iranians returning to Iran. What should they be? I mean, Iranians coming back from America never got a negative Well, I think the uh, one has to. Uh, uh, I'm not one of those people who uh, think that the Iranian nation is a, an invention of the last hundred years. Um, but that's why I try to distinguish briefly. Uh, it, it's somewhat more complicated in my paper, but not by much. Uh, I try to distinguish between a sense of cultural distinctiveness um, and modern nationalism. Uh, The sense of cultural distinctiveness, of course, has always been there. Uh, Persians have always known that they're Persians. Um, From the 13th century to the 14th century, uh, etc., etc. And Arabs have always known that they're Arabs. Um, and occasionally there may be friction between, just as there was between Persians and Turks, or Turks and Arabs, right? But I think there's a different quality to uh, friction between groups who are aware of their cultural distinctiveness and nations where this cultural distinctiveness uh, has a state as its basis. Um, what we now have is uh, cultural distinctiveness married to a state which has an army, which has an educational system, uh, which has a radio station nowadays, uh, etc. Right? And that I think gives it a slightly different. And that's why I said what makes these constructs, these nationalistic constructs, plausible, as I said, is precisely the pre-existence of uh, these other 
stereotypes uh, and so on that, uh, that you mention. And I think what uh, many people like to see the Shahnameh as the beginning of Iranian nationalism, right? I tend to think that it's the end of phase one of Iranian nationalism. Because uh, when Ferdowsi wrote, well, the, the memory of the conquest of Iran was obviously still alive. And you see all the resentment about this conquest being expressed in the letter of uh, Farouk and the letter to and from Farouk, etc., etc., right? But shortly thereafter, um, there was no longer any, um, any uh, kind of any um, material basis for any hostility. Even Kastravi, I mean, Kastravi is sometimes seen as, uh, uh, as the sort of the uh, the uh, uh, architect of Iranian ethnic nationalism. Well, he was not an anti-Arab. One thing he wrote was, uh, at one point, a point he wrote was that, well, you know, in the 17th century, the Arabs conquered us, but then the Buyids, who are Persians, conquered Baghdad. So we're even. Hmm? So we're even. So let's let's quit this uh, kind of mutual uh, animosity, right? Uh, and uh, therefore, I think by the time uh, thanks to Ferdowsi, Iranians had their language, had their poetry, had their literature, had their culture secure. Hmm? There was no longer any reason uh, to be as anti-Arab as a Ferdowsi was. Um, and it became a matter of simply being, you know, you're an Arab, I'm a Persian, he's a Kurd, that one is a Lor, the fourth one is a Talishi, the fifth one is an Indian, the sixth one is an Egyptian. Right? And so that's why I think, for instance, in the, in the poetry of Saadi, I see very little uh, anti-Arabism. Um, he talks with great sympathy of Damashq, uh, and so on. And um, I think, if anything, in those years, the other becomes the Turk, who is marauding, who is violent, uh, who is destructive, etc., uh, uh, etc., et right? And uh, that's why I think there, is a, uh, uh, there are two phases. There is the sort of uh, Islamic conquest phase, which comes to an end with Ferdowsi, followed by you know, a sense of cultural distinctiveness and superiority, and, superiority. Uh, and then the, the juxtaposition, the superimposition on this, of a kind of European-style nationalism, which I think was facilitated in the case of its inventor, namely Mizar Khan Kermani, by his Zoroastrian origins. Because we do find real pre-modern Arab, anti-Arab racism in Zoroastrian writers. 16th, 17th, 18th century Zoroastrian writers are deeply anti-Arab. And uh, I think Mizar Khan Kermani may have be, may be echoing some of this heritage in uh, in his writings. Yeah. Uh, I just want to make the same point. Don't you see that the, the whole underpinning of the problem could be that Iranians really never accepted the invasion of Arabs and the position of Islam. And it would have been impossible, as you know the history, for anybody who brought that issue as a kid. So Arabs became a, a substitute for Islam. 
I mean, I go, I, I go by what the official registered names internationally are nowadays. Yeah, it's Persian Gulf, and I, I never say Arabian Gulf. I never say Persian Gulf. Uh, I always say Persian Gulf because that's the official uh, term. But I'm motivated not by, if I say Persian Gulf rather than anything else, my motivation is not Persian nationalism. My motivation is to stick to the international nomenclature. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. I mean, I think on I would have to see what most international maps call it. And I've seen the word Arvandrud used only by Iranians, and only very recently. I think the the repopularization, the repopularization of Arvandrud was a direct answer to. Arabian Gulf. Well, I mean, Ferdus, he did many other things. There are no historic names. There are no historic names. You, you have uh, Ferdus's choice. Okay, I mean, uh, uh, in the 19th century, Tehran was written with a ta. Now we write it with a te, te, te. Should, should we say that the historic name of Tehran is Tehran with a Tain just because in the 19th century it was written that way? You cannot change the historic name I'm saying there is no such thing as a historic name. I mean, just because something is used in one period doesn't mean that it can't be used in a different period. There are procedures to change the Yeah, the procedures are probably international nomenclature. And uh, just as Persian Gulf is now officially the name of the Gulf, rather than Gulf of Qatif, rather than uh, Gulf of Basra, rather than Arabian Gulf, I think the Shatul Arab. And besides, I mean, uh, I have a personal preference. I like it to be called. I want it to be called Shatul Arab. I want it. Because uh, I think uh, the Shatul Arab flowing into the Persian Gulf uh, captures uh, the... Uh, uh, the ties uh, across the borders. I think that this beautifully captures uh, all, uh, because the, the fact is that a body of water connects much more than it separates. I have no problem. Yeah. Are you a historian? I'm are you a historian? No, no, you are. Okay, so you're giving me a lesson. Is <laughs> 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 there any other question? In that case, yeah. Very good. 730, yeah. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.